I want to thank Brother Gene and Brother Kyle for this chance today to teach this lesson. I consider it a great honor to be able to speak to you all. I love you all so much, and Brother Gene really hit the nail on the head when he said that uh, I know a little bit about this subject, and it's because of you all that I know quite a bit about this subject, and enduring love. I've experienced enduring love through this body. Um, by the way, I want to say I see my grandma back there. I love her with all my heart. Um, I had a dream a few weeks ago that um, when I got up here, she didn't know that I was going to teach this lesson today. I didn't tell her. So I had a dream that she was sitting right there. And um, hopefully this is not a prophetic dream because in my dream, she was sitting there and I got up here and got the microphone and she was so shocked, she grabbed her heart and her jaw dropped and she just about fainted. So Zipporah, I'm going to need you to keep an eye on my grandma back there. <laughs> and I'll tell you what else is ironic. Chelsea over here, last night, I was dreaming about this whole thing again. And in my dream last night, they kept... Like, I was going to teach. I was going to come up here and teach, and I knew that I had a certain amount of time. And I was kind of like, man, I, maybe they'll make announcements really long because I don't want to let out super early, which if I do, Rebecca said it's okay. But um, in my dream, they did that. Announcements were quite long. And then they called somebody up to sing. And then they called somebody up to testify. And then I started thinking, man, if I don't get up there after this person, I'm not going to have time to teach it. And then they gave Chelsea the mic. She was here. And then now here she is. So I love you, Chelsea, and it's so good to see you today. All right. I want to thank the Lord for what he's done in my life. Um, I'm blown away by what he can do in such a short amount of time. If I would have known that God could move this, this way in my life in such a short amount of time, I would have made this decision a long time ago to serve him and to quit worrying about all the other things, you know, that kept me from doing that. Um, so we are talking about enduring love today. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, speaking of love, says that it beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they will cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. We live, we have flesh and blood. Every day we go to work, we go wherever we're going and do whatever we're doing, and we encounter so many things, most of which are temporary. Our homes are destruct destructible. Our, our jobs, they're destructible. Every, the things that we touch and see every day, most of them, are not eternal, but love is something that we each experience every day, whether we know it or not. Maybe, maybe we don't feel like we experience love very much, but if we have breath in our bodies, God's love is extended to us. We experience it every day, and it is an eternal thing, and that's why it's so important as disciples to learn and to try to love the way that God has called us to love because it's such an important thing. It is the apex of the greatest story ever told, a place between heaven and earth, just days, perhaps hours before Jesus had declared, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. 
It was a grim allusion to the gruesome death on the horizon. It was a death of humiliation, painful betrayal, unfairness, and physical and emotional horror. The songwriter Scott Wesley Brown so aptly penned, he carried the weight of the world upon his shoulders. It was the most gruesome and unfair exhibition of love. It was love in action. It was love predicated upon the direst of needs, redemption. Jesus became the spotless lamb sacrificed once for all the sins of the world. The writer of Hebrews would later so beautifully pin the motivating force driving Jesus' loving sacrifice that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Through the matted blood on his brow and clouding his eyes, the shredded flesh hanging from his ribs, and the splintered cross and thorny crown piercing his skin, Jesus cried, it is finished. Love bore all things, hoped all things, and endured all things. Love didn't fail, it won. True love always does. God's love has and it continues to endure so much for us. And one of the first things that we're gonna talk about today that love endures is short-sightedness. And that is your first underline. I mean, my underline, your first blank. <laughs> um, Leslie has agreed to stand up and let you all know if I skip telling you that it's a fill in the blank. So, just kidding. It is the temptation of all disciples to lose sight of the big picture. In other words, we become short-sighted. We're called to run with patience the race that's set before us, implying that as Brother Gene preached a few weeks ago, we should just keep marching. We should always keep reaching for that goal that's before us. We have something very specific that we're reaching for. Unfortunately, there's a reason why a message like that is not only preached one time. We become short-sighted. We'll hear a message like that again because it is human nature to become short-sighted. Our very nature desires the path of least resistance and to achieve goals as quickly and as painlessly as possible. But although this is our nature, and this, this just comes naturally from us, we should not just accept that. We need to combat that mentality. Following the path of least resistance is the opposite of enduring and bearing all things, which we're called to do. We're not alone in this mentality though, we actually are in very good company because Jesus' disciples who walked with him in the flesh, they even struggled with this. Jesus began to describe to his disciples that he would suffer many things and be killed. Peter had a very natural human response to that. He became impulsive and short-sighted and he rebuked Jesus and opposed love that suffers. Now, Peter and the disciples had walked with Jesus for a while and they had experienced many things with him and they knew that this man doesn't quite move the way that most people do. They knew Jesus, he knows what he's doing. They had experienced that many times and as far as I can tell in scripture, they didn't make it a habit 
to jump up and rebuke Jesus and say, no, Jesus, what you just said is wrong and that's not going to happen. But Peter did that in this case. And I have to wonder if that might be because just a few verses before, Jesus had been telling them about something that sounded way different. He had been talking about something that sounded victorious, about that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And he told Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. So to Peter, when he heard Jesus now begin to talk about how he was going to suffer and be killed, that just sounded way off to Peter. That's not what he had in his mind. And that happens to us many times. We, God will speak a word to us and tell us, you know, show us things that he's going to do in our lives. And we get excited. We're ready for those things. And we imagine how it's going to come, come out, you know. But as we go along, then the days go by and maybe things don't look victorious. We get thrown off and we become short-sighted. But Jesus' response to Peter was that he did not savor the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Peter was leaning on his own understanding. We have to be very careful not to do that. Jesus repeatedly taught his disciples that discipleship was about saving one's soul and not gaining things on earth. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? So I want you to imagine, what would gaining the world look like to you? For some people, it's assets, it's boats and cars and houses and things like that. For some people, it's relationships and attention from people. For some people, it's the, it's sinful pleasures. That gaining the world can look like different things. But imagine that you could go through life experiencing all the pleasures that the world has to offer, gaining everything you ever wanted. Everything was all good your whole life, and then you die because it's going to happen to every one of us. What good has it done you to gain those things? But those are the things that cloud up our vision so often in daily life. The thing about worldly pleasures and untamed flesh is that at what point is it enough? At what point does our flesh say, okay, I'm satisfied now. Now I'll live right. Now I'll make God my goal. I'll make heaven my goal. It doesn't. So many people have wasted an entire lifetime reaching for satisfaction that is unattainable. And then they've gone on to eternity. And I wonder, I was thinking about this, and I wonder how it would impact me if I could see a number that represented the people that that's happened to. Or just the people that have sat in this place that that's happened to. It almost makes me sick to my stomach to think of it. But the thing is, today, we're here, and we have a chance today to make the choice that that's not going to be me. I admonish you to make that decision that the things of this world are not going to cloud my vision and that I'm going to focus on heaven every day. As disciples of Jesus, we have to see the big picture. 
And that's your next underline. I got it. And what is the big picture? It's eternity. It's heaven. We're so focused on what we see here because this is all we've ever known. That's why you've got to make a conscious decision to, to put things in place in your life to remind you what the real goal is, what the big picture is every day, because we're not going to get to heaven by accident. There is no bigger picture than eternity. We think days are long here sometimes. There is no bigger picture. Distractions do come because we do live in a fallen world. But it's up to us to combat those things. Brother Gene said a few weeks ago in the prayer room that if we could go around the room and pull out distractions out of people's minds and throw them in the middle of the floor, that the pile would be huge. It would be. We've got things that we deal with, but we've got to choose not to let those things overtake our minds. Thank God that even though we lose focus, Jesus endures our short-sightedness, and he still offers us his kingdom. He even gave us a warning. He said that in the world you're going to have tribulation. Well, there's a lot of promises in God's word that I love to claim, but that is not one of them. But it's a promise. It's going to happen. Paul identified the components of the kingdom of God as not meat or drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Those things are available to us, but not if our focus is this world and the things of this world. When we don't lose sight of our eternal hope, the love, of, the love that God shares with us in his kingdom is peace that passes understanding, joy that's unspeakable, and righteousness that's unmerited. But we've got to keep that eternal hope in mind. Those are the things that are of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. So it comes naturally. If, if all we're thinking of is the things going on here, we're not going to, we're going to be stressed out and full of anxiety. And I mean, that's natural. But God's word admonishes us to fight short-sightedness, not only individually, but as a body. Hebrews tells us to provoke each other to good works, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, and to exhort one another. And it says so much more as we see the day approaching. I don't know about you, but I see the day approaching. It also tells us to exhort one another daily, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 1 Thessalonians tells us to encourage and build one another up. Colossians tells us to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Philippians tells us to think on things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and a good report. These are ways that the word tells us to fight short-sightedness, not to just sit back and take it. And one of my favorites, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, tells us that the dead in Christ are going to rise and that we should comfort one another with these words. Now, we get together often with our friends and and we talk about a lot of things, but how often do we talk about this? Because the Bible says that this should be part of our conversation often. We're supposed to comfort each other, remind each other that the Lord's coming back, that we're going to spend eternity with him. In other words, one of our main jobs as disciples is to stand against short-sightedness in one another. Let us not ever let each other forget what's at stake. 
Let us determine as the body of Christ to combat short-sightedness in each other. Your next fill-in-the-blank is that love endures and embraces the shameful. Not only does love endure short-sightedness, but love is willing to draw close to those whose lives are shameful. She was unwelcome and uninvited. The place was prepared and the invitation given for the holy and the worthy to attend. Yet when she found out where Jesus was, she came, she wept, and she worshiped. The response of the religious was predictable, skepticism and judgment. But the skepticism and judgment were not toward the woman, but toward Jesus. They said, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. The Pharisees couldn't comprehend a love that welcomed the touch of the shameful. They had become so accustomed to living by sets of rules that compassion had no place in their minds and in their hearts. And the irony of this situation is that these people felt like Jesus was here at this party or whatever to be impressed by them, that it was them that they were there for, but it wasn't. It was people like this woman that Jesus came for. He said it himself that they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. For I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Not only did Christ's love welcome the touch, it was willing to speak up to those who stood in judgment. That's your next underline, judgment. I mean, fill in the blank. Jesus explained that this woman, because she had been forgiven of so much, had such a great desire to worship and love him, while those standing around in judgment didn't share that desire because they were confident in their own righteousness. Jesus did, in this case, what he did with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Love endures and embraces the shameful because love seeks to save that which was lost. So I may be throwing myself under the bus here, but does anybody else once in a while go to clean out the fridge or you find that old lunchbox that belongs to your kid that you forgot a dish was in? Yeah. And you go to get it because you're cleaning the house real good. Yes. Yeah. And you can tell from the outside what's going on in there is not good. Happened to me yesterday. And I stood there in the kitchen and was like, this is a good dish. It's a good, like, Tupperware thick with the thing on the top that you can open and put it in the microwave. It's a good dish. But that looks ugly on the inside. And I don't like smells. I'm leery of smells. And I did not want to pull the, li the, the lid off of that and wash it. Now, I knew if I would do that, I could get that stuff out from in there, throw it in the trash, and let the thing sit in some bleach water for a while, and this thing would be good to go. But I wasn't quite sure if it was worth the effort. So I contemplated, and I have many times before tossed the dish in the trash. This one was too good. I made myself go ahead and deal with it and clean it out. But my point is, that got me to thinking, how many times do people come in, and you can tell from the outside, you can smell from the outside without even opening that lid that something, whatever's going on in there is not good. I used to be one of those people. I exuded nastiness 
that my soul was so just gross. But thank God nobody threw me away. Thank God. Thank God for friends. Thank God for leaders, people who, even, even when it got to the point, they didn't even know what to do with me anymore, but they didn't give up. They kept praying and they kept loving. Your next fill in the blank is love is willing to forgive. Love looks past the shame, ignores the crowd, and embraces the broken. Love does what others will not. Love gets battered by criticism as it draws close to those others shun. Love endures. Love endures selfishness and pride. That's your next one. When James and John came to Jesus and asked him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. They didn't get the response that they expected from Jesus. They made their friends mad. <laughs> Jesus tried to correct the thinking of all of them and give them an understanding of what his kingdom was like as opposed to the way that the kingdoms of this world works. He said, you know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Now, if anybody knows how the kingdom of God works, it's going to be Jesus. So him saying this wasn't just a suggestion that... Uh, you know, this, it might be a good idea for my kingdom to work this way. He meant it. This is how his kingdom works. If you want to be great in the kingdom of all, or of God, you're going to be a servant of all. That's just how it works. So you may as well put that into practice and change your mentality to fit what Jesus said is the way that his kingdom works. The disciples saw discipleship as a pathway to privilege. That's a fill in the blank. But Jesus saw it as a pathway to sacrifice. We see this mentality every day in the world. We may have a coworker who dutifully panders to the boss. There's people who try to say all the right things, people who volunteer for all the projects, people who toe the line. And it happens in Christian ministry as well. You have people that cater to the leaders they volunteer for everything, and they strive to be noticed. And there's not anything specific, specifically wrong with the things that they're doing, but it's the mentality that they have about it that makes it wrong. Many people desire the privileges that come with faithfulness. They want position, prestige, and recognition. But fewer serve in order to achieve the permanent posture of a servant. James and John fell into this trap. Jesus concluded his answer to James and John by noting the loving and sacrificial reason that he had come to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. According to Jesus, a true and loving disciple is to look for ways to serve and not to be served. Jesus told his disciples, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all, 
Jesus was adamant about this concept. Among modern-day disciples, a dangerous consumerism mentality exists in many who attend churches. They think, how is the church here to serve me? How does the church suit me and my needs? But the voice of Jesus echoes throughout the centuries, serve. Jesus has called us to serve. Find a place to volunteer your gifts. Sacrifice your time. Invest your energy. Put yourself last. Understand that your spiritual gifts are from God to be used for his purpose and his glory. You're simply a part of a glorious entity called the body of Christ. When you do serve, don't let it go to your head. Paul warned the Roman church members not to think of themselves too highly and to remember that they were all one body in Christ, every one members one of another. Paul was a leader. He was very well known. He was a person of great gifting and influence, but he made it clear to his followers that he was here to look out for their interests. He suffered many tragedies for the sake of serving others and spreading the gospel. That is what true ministry and leadership looks like. Your next fill in the blank is love endures pain and betrayal. We have to understand that to be a disciple is to lovingly endure hurts. That's tough. It's easy to say and it's easy to hear until we get hurt and then we have to put that in action. But we have to realize that whether we follow Jesus or not, painful situations are going to come. There's three ways that people can hurt us. The first one is hurts of commission. That's one of your blanks, commission. These are caused intentionally. People can stab us in the back, take advantage of us, or intentionally abuse us. And these are times that put love to the test. These are times that you really, well, I'm not going to put us all in one box. When it happens to me, I'm ready to knuckle up. I want to fight. Or I used to, I should say. The Lord has worked on me. I'm not going to, I'm going to be like Brother Gene and say, I'm not going to follow that rabbit trail. I'm just going to keep on going. But anyway, it is unwise, though to follow that mentality, the, the easiest mentality, the one that comes naturally that says, get that person back. Maybe not even get that person back, but I'm gonna put a wall up and I'm gonna show them they're not allowed in my life and in my heart anymore. Maybe not hurt them back, but you know. But it's unwise to have that thinking. The wise thing to do is to look at Jesus as our example. He was beaten and bruised yet he endured to demonstrate love. Peter beautifully described Jesus' suffering, stating that Jesus left us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. What a beautiful example we have. Sometimes we feel like if we let somebody hurt us and we don't do anything back, that that makes us weak. We look weak. Jesus wasn't weak at all. 
Hurts of commission are difficult to endure because of their intentionality, but Christ-like love endures. The next fill in the blank is that there are hurts of omission. This is not what people do, but what they fail to do. Maybe it's a spouse that's not supportive, friends that are not available, or leadership that we feel just aren't attentive enough. And maybe sometimes they're in the wrong, but also maybe sometimes we are just expecting too much and we're leaning too much on these people to be too much for us when Jesus should be our all in all. But regardless, either way, these things are still painful. They can be painful. But Jesus wasn't immune to this kind of disappointment either. In one of his darkest hours, he asked his disciples to be watchful and pray because his soul was exceedingly sorrowful. But in his time of need, his closest friends fell asleep. That had to be so hurtful to Jesus. But soon after, he died for them. He could have easily, like I said, told them, well, you're just not going to be very close to me anymore. I'm just going to put a wall up, you know, and all that. He didn't do that at all. That wasn't part of who he was at all. He died for them after that. Life is full of circumstances where people don't measure up. Sometimes the ones that we love the most do not do what we asked or hoped that they would do, and as a result, we hurt. And even though we can, and sometimes we should, confront those who don't follow through, love must still endure. The last type of hurt is hurts of incomprehension. Sometimes people put us through pain and have no comprehension that what they're doing is wrong. Maybe they say something that's embarrassing about us, trying to be funny or something. Maybe they say something that's true, but it's still hurtful. But once again, in Jesus, we have the prime example of going through pain at the hands of people who lack comprehension of their wrong. The people who crucified him thought they were doing the right thing. Yet while suffering unimaginable and emotional and physical pain, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he meant that. I couldn't imagine. He meant it. He truly wanted forgiveness for these people as they were putting him through this. While we strive in this journey of following Jesus and loving as he loved, we must never lose sight of this truth. We endure the pain for the prize. The book of Hebrews urges all those who carry the cross of love, let us run with patience the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And like him, our goal should be to be like and glorify our Father in heaven. Additionally, our goal is to lead others to Christ. Paul said, though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. He then went on to describe how diligently he tried to reach all people by all means. He declared, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake. 
Finally, we endure so that we can help others grow in Christ. In Colossians 1.24, Paul rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of the body of Christ. If we're to be true disciples of Jesus, we must strive for the goal of glorifying our Father, leading others to Christ, and helping others to grow in him. Our love must be his love, and it must endure. And that is all I have for you today. So Brother Gene may want to take a few minutes and add to that. Hey, let's give the Lord a good hand today. Thank you, Lord. Aren't you thankful for His love today? How many know His love endured for you? His love endured for you. And I'm so thankful. I'm so proud of Erica. Wasn't too long ago she wrote me a letter, left it on my desk, and it was about some of you folks. It wasn't a bad letter, let me say that. You think, oh, she wrote a letter. It was, she, she was talking about your testimony in her life and how she watched you from afar and how your love and your faithfulness impacted her life. And so I'm thankful for what God has done in Erica, and I'm very proud. And i tell you what else, Sister Shirley, you didn't fall out in the floor or anything, but I know you were proud of Erica as well and, and uh, her walk with the Lord. I have a picture in my office. And it's two gentlemen in this church. Uh, one's gone on to be with the Lord. The other one, you probably felt like sending him, but he's not gone yet. Brother Mac Todd is one of the people in that picture. He's still with us. Brother Frank Moore's the other one. And it was on uh, groundbreaking Sunday here for this gymnasium. And in those two men's hands, there's white stakes that uh, we were going to stake in this piece of ground right here before we dug uh, one square foot of dirt out of here. And on that, uh, I've got those pictures on my computer so I can zoom in, and I, I know what Frank had on his little stake. And that Sunday, we gave them pens, and they wrote things, prayer requests, things they wanted God to do, and they drove those, remember those little mallets? We drove those little stakes in the ground right here. And uh, with the promise that when we dug the footings for this building, those stakes were going in those footings around this building right here. So some of you that don't realize it today, but sitting all the way around you, 365 degrees, there are prayers that have been prayed for, uh, that have been answered, some haven't. But I'll tell you right now, on one of those stakes, there was Erica's name. And uh, that stake is in the footings of this building. And today, love has endured. The race is not over, but let's keep on keeping on. I said the race is not over. Let's keep running the race. Oh, come on, stand with me. Let's love the Lord and give Him praise right now. I feel His presence. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this time together, Lord. Thank You for the prayers that You know how to answer. Thank You, Lord, that we can keep on, just keeping on, that we can endure all things because of Your love in our life. Lord, I praise You today for Your promises, and Lord, not one of them will fail. 
I thank you, Lord, that we can lift our eyes to greater things. Help us not be short-sighted. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on the finish line, Lord. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord, for your love in our lives. And thank you for the love of your people. And we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.